0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been over 360 of them now, and if this is new to you and you want to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu and you'll find all the previous ones organized in four or five different ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, and so if you feel like supporting it, there's a donate button on the right-hand side of every page on the site. I'm really honored to have as my guest today, Sri M. Um, I've just read his entire autobiography and found it fascinating. Um, Many of you listening and watching will have read um, Yogananda's Autobiography of a Yogi, and Sri M's autobiography is somewhat reminiscent of that. He has had an amazing life and all sorts of amazing experiences trekking around the Himalayas with his master. We're going to talk about some of those during this interview. Well, first of all, let me just welcome you. Thank well, thank you, Sri M. Thank you. thank you very yeah. much. And we had some technical problems before getting started here, so I appreciate your patience And while we iron those out. Um, let me read a brief biography of you. Uh, Shriyam was born in Kerala, South India. At the age of nineteen and a half, attracted by a strange and irresistible urge to go to the Himalayas, he left home. At the Vyasa cave, beyond the Himalayan shrine of Bhadranath, he met his master and lived with him for three and a half years, wandering freely the length and breadth of the snow clad Himalayan region. What he learned from his master, Maheshwaranath Babaji, transformed his consciousness totally back in the plains he as instructed by his master lived a normal life working for a living fulfilling his social commitments and at the same time preparing himself to teach all that he had learned and experienced at a signal from his master he entered the teaching phase of his life today he travels all over the world to share his experiences and knowledge equally at home in the religious teachings of most major religions Sri M, born as mumtaz ali khan often says go to the core theories are of no use. Shriyam is married and has two children, and he also just told me he has two cocker spaniels. Um, <laughs> he leads a simple life teaching and heading the Satsang Foundation, a charitable concern promoting excellence in education. At present he lives in Mandan, Man, Mandana Pali, Andhra Pradesh, pr- uh, forgive me if I pronounce that incorrectly, just three hours from Bangalore. And he also just completed a 7,500 and something mile walk from Kanyakumari, which is the southernmost tip of India, to Kashmir, which is way in the north. And we're going to talk about that too. So, I'm really glad we're doing this. I'm wondering if it might be good to start with the story that you tell in your autobiography where a young yogi in the Himalayas doing tapas is approached by an old Muslim man and rejects him. And uh, you could take the story from there.
1: Now, I have uh, started with the story without mentioning who these people actually are.
0: But you learn that as you go along in the book, you kind of figure it out,
1: yeah. Yes, I have left it to be figured out Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to, from the beginning itself, say that I I was this and I was that and so on. So actually the characters in the story, the young yogi to whom the Muslim... uh, the Sufi man comes, is me in some past life, and the great yogi who is the Guru is none other than Sri Guru Babaji, who for hundreds and thousands of years have been known to exist in the Himalayas. Yogananda Paramahamsa in his autobiography calls him Mahavatar, but that was a word Mahavatar was a term coined by Yogananda Paramahamsa to show that avatars have come and gone and there's somebody who's still there.
0: But he's not so, really an avatar.
1: Well, we call him Sri Guru Babaji. To be very frank with you, we really don't know much about this person except that we know that he exists mm-hmm. and uh, is not born in the normal way from like, somebody's, somebody's womb. I would prefer to call him a being with human form, let's put it that way. So I have in my past life been associated with him for some time. And in this
0: life you met him several times?
1: Only twice.
0: Twice. Uh
1: Twice, not more than that, twice. So in fact my coming and being born in a Muslim family and then being a found out or discovered again by Maheshwanath Babaji, who was Sri Guru Babaji's senior most disciple as far as I know. It is part of that story because mm-hmm. I had to learn how it feels to belong to one community and not get accepted by another, even though you are most sincere. Yeah. So I had to go through this, but uh, because of one's own practical and spiritual personal experience, today I have no such problem of being accepted by the community which is the majority community in India, for Mm. instance.
0: But in the context of this story, uh, you in your previous life were a young yogi and perhaps a little arrogant or something and and Mm. this, this Sufi man came to you entreating you to take him on as a student, you brushed him off, rejected him, he said, Okay then I'm going to jump in this river and you said do whatever you want he jumped in the river and drowned and then Babaji came to you and said bad, yeah. bad move
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah. he said bad move who do you think you are <laughs> you know yeah. and because from the point of view of somebody who has had high spiritual experience there's no difference between people external differences i mean
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: one has to see how mature a person is spiritually and if he needs guidance it's our duty to guide not ask questions so that was a big lesson to me plus that you can also go quite high in your meditation and so on and still be left with an ego you know an arrogant ego which is a it's it's so difficult to cut out i see sometimes especially when people you know when you have your somewhat different from others and you have some qualities which may be more than human in some way people start worshiping you and you know looking up to you now the one thing you have to be very careful is how one's own ego begins to expand when this happens you know so this was a great lesson to me so in this life i have been extremely careful about this in mm-hmm. watching myself carefully in if somebody praises me too much, I try to just cut it off and say no, you know,
2: yeah. you know.
1: You must have read the Gita and so on, I am sure, because oh, yeah. I know, I kind of know roughly your background uh-huh. and I think that um, one of the things in the Gita that really has affected me, which I is Tulyanindastutirmauni, which means the yogi considers praise and blame as the same, Neither does he get flattered nor he goes uh, down when somebody says, oh, he's a stupid idiot. So, this is something very, very important.
0: Ah. I I really think it is and it it really, I've given it a lot of thought to it and talked about it with a lot of people because there are so many teachers, some of whom um, are really impressive, you know, they've really attained a a very high state, you sit in their presence and you feel very profound darshan. Uh, they do wonderful things and, and beneficial things, and yet you find you know, they have these scandals and problems and <laughs> issues that happen over and over again, and um, there are a few exceptions, but it, it seems to be the, generally the rule more than the exception, and it really confuses and disillusions people when this happens.
1: Yeah. So, I would do, do you want me to respond? Yes, please. Yeah. I would like to say this. Um, before you choose a person as your teacher, give it a lot of time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think one shouldn't accept somebody based on external appearances, somebody might look very nice and holy, but that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And the other is, it is these disciples who raise you up and take you right up and then suddenly when something happens to them which they don't like, they drop you down like hot coals, mm-hmm. like a heartbreak. So. The more the less dependent you are on these uh, your so-called followers, at least inside, internally, the better off you are. You know, one has to be careful on this point. Uh, very often, some of the scandals are created by people who have had a personal problem. Possible. Sometimes they may be genuine. Can't say that. Yeah. And sometimes they may also be to test you, this is also possible. So there are so many angles to this, you know, so my understanding is when you go to a spiritual teacher, we just need to ask how we are progressing rather than look at other things. When I first went to the Ram Krishna Mission, Babaji had told me spend some time with the Ram Krishna Mission. You know the Ram Krishna Mission is sure. a very big organization. Mm-hmm. So when I went to Belumat to the headquarters, there was this uh, Swami Ananda who is a well-known person, he has lectured, he has written on the Upanishads, he was at one time the president of the Ramakrishna Mission also. He was not at that time, he was heading the Ramakrishna Institute of Culture. And so when I went as a young man, he called me aside and he said, look, you have come to an ashram, don't think that you have come to the holiest place on earth, because this place is also built up of human beings. And when there are many human beings, there are these small caucuses and circles and so on. So don't get caught up with this. Don't think everybody is a saint. Everybody, many of them are here for sadhana, they are not saints. So you stay free of these little groups and try to understand the teachings. And if you want to understand the teachings, there are books, there are senior monks, talk to them figure it out, but don't get caught up in this. Now this can happen in any ashram, because an ashram is a small place where so many kinds of people come together and different people come for different reasons. Some come to become successors to the Guru, you know, so there is some politics involved, I mean it's it's normal because we are human beings, therefore in this situation it is difficult to avoid it, so be careful.
0: Yeah.
2: All mm-hmm.
0: Some gurus, I think Amma, Mata Amrita Nandamai uses this expression. She says sometimes an ashram is like rocks in a tumbler. You know, you, you put all these mm-hmm. rough rocks in a tumbler and it tumbles and tumbles and tumbles, and the rocks are, you know, getting all their rough edges smoothed out, but they all come out nice and smooth in the end.
1: <laughs> yeah. Maybe not all, but at least some. At least some, yeah. Let me
0: <laughs> so it seems like there are a couple of cautionary notes here. One would be, for teachers themselves to um, somehow be cautious of and, and somehow rise above the possibility of being having their ego inflated by the attention yeah. that comes to them. And maybe we can talk about that one a little. Let's talk about that one a little bit more before we go on to the second point I was about to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, how? Mm-hmm. It, I guess it brings up the question of when and when does one actually become qualified to become a teacher? Mm-hmm. I've heard that in Zen circles it's said that after your awakening you should wait at least 10 years. Um, and so who determines... And I know you waited a long time and went through all kinds of ordinary life circumstances before you took on a, any kind of teaching role. How does one know one's ready and how does one avoid prematurely jumping into that role?
2: Yeah, uh,
1: I can give you a few guidelines. Um, this is from my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, When you teach, when one starts talking to people, I did it very hesitantly in the beginning, Uh, you have to see if the words that you use, are they really coming from your personal experience or are are you imagining them to be your personal experience, maybe you have read about them somewhere. Mm. So this is one thing that can help us to watch out. The other is some of the teachings are not meant for everybody. So when you say the same thing to a hundred people, it is a possibility that some people take it in one way and some people take So we should have the capacity to judge what is to be said here and what is not to be said here,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or what is to be said there and what is not to be said here. See. This is an extreme way of doing it. I mean, expressing it when Jesus Christ or whoever, the great yogi who walked in Jerusalem, said, "Give that which is good and un- give not that which is good unto dogs. Now, cast your pearls before swine, mm-hmm. lest they cast them down and trample them and turn again and rend you." I mean, it's an. I wouldn't say that. I won't call anybody a dog or a swine, but <laughs> but it's an extreme way of saying it. Yeah. So we have to watch this very carefully. Is this person ready to take. Now the problem is when you go in, in into a large gathering and speak you can't really choose whom you are talking to. So the only thing is you have to say okay I will talk let's see who can take it up
2: mm.
1: and who doesn't. Uh, the other criteria is don't give too much importance to certain powers that may develop in the yogi. So Try and, as much as possible, to keep away from all this business of healing and things like that. If you want to have a spiritual teaching, it's better to stick to it as the central part of your life. Uh, that's the other thing. Uh, so, these are some of the criteria which I took. The most important, of course, is that unless you have experience, it's better not to teach. Because yeah. if something goes wrong, you won't be able to put it back in order. This is especially so when you come to yogic teachings, Mm -hmm. the teachings of Kundalini Yoga or the teachings of Kriya Yoga, you can't just teach somebody if you don't know and if you haven't experienced it yourself, because tomorrow if something goes wrong you won't be able to set it right and we are dealing with powerful energies.
0: Mm. What about teachers that are maybe part way there? Can they help people up to a point, for instance, one might be qualified to teach grammar school or one might be qualified to teach high school or, or college or on the graduate level, and um, you could be very useful as a grammar school teacher, even if you would not be qualified to teach at the college level so in in, a, in the spiritual sense do you do you also see that with spiritual teachers?
1: I think so. this is possible provided they are transparent and sincere. And clear and say, Look, this I have not experienced. This is very important.
0: So, honesty.
1: Yeah, be very honest about it. Yeah. See, this this is what it is said. I have, in fact, even in the Upanishads, when the great Rishis taught certain things, they said, I don't understand how to put this to you. Mm -hmm. Then, what about us, (laughs) ordinary people? So, uh, we have to say that, look, this is how it is in the scriptures, this is the science, this is how much I have practiced, you can also practice it, but beyond that, I don't know.
0: I remember a line from the Upanishads, I bet you, you can pinpoint it, where there is some saying about ultimate reality and then the saying is, yes. perhaps he knows and if he doesn't know then maybe exactly. nobody knows.
1: <laughs> exactly. It doesn't say nobody knows, perhaps he knows or perhaps he knows not. Right, right. <laughs> so this is from the Rig yeah. It is about the creation hymn, mm-hmm. you know, it says in the beginning what existed, does this exist or did only the gods exist or was there nothing around and then it says, who knows, perhaps he knows who is the chief of the gods or perhaps he knows not. <laughs> See this attitude is should be something to be kept fresh in our minds, it shouldn't be it said, oh, this is Rigveda 2,000 years ago, let's not forget it. No, 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 this is so, so important.
0: Yeah. So, so even the can... Rishis who cognize the Rig Veda are admitting that they have their limitations.
1: Absolutely, everybody. I think as long as you have a human body, there are some uh, restrictions, there are some limitations, especially because you are talking about something which is beyond description. Uh, Kena Upanishad one of the most important of principle, Upanishad says, this the word cannot express, tam that which words cannot express, that alone is the supreme being, nothing that you worship here. Now this, this is a very sweeping statement. So, the one has to be very careful with this. I am mm. saying, to, the key is to say, look, this much I know, beyond that I don't know, but these are the teachings." practice it and find out for yourself.
0: Yeah, on uh, on a related note, here's something you said in your book, you said, no human being with a physical brain can ever be omniscient. Um, I
1: believe
0: (laughs) Yeah, and actually one thing related to what you just said is that, um, you know, teachers saying this much I know and that that much I don't know, I, I sort of find it healthy in the case of most teachers if they have some kind of connection with a lineage or tradition they give homage to a a teacher and are not taking upon themselves the whole yes, yes. you know authorship of of the knowledge
1: that helps yeah that helps like i i belong to the nath sampradaya because maheshwar babaji was a nath mm-hmm. and before him his guru was babaji who has no sampradaya mm-hmm. i mean who is not we can't say he belongs to this tradition or that but I still feel I belong to that tradition of them. So when I teach, I usually say this is what the teaching says. You know? And it's a deliberate attempt not to protect myself more than the teaching. Right. Mm-hmm. It's okay. deliberate. I might have had the experience. And when I said, when I said in my book, which you said just now, that nobody is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, this connects to your previous question in some way. Some. Many disciples or many followers begin to consider a great teacher or someone who's become famous as omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. Right. And then, when they discover in life, due to certain experiences, that it is not so, then they get completely
0: disillusioned. I've seen that. Mm-hmm.
1: You see? So,
0: yeah. Yeah, in fact, there was a woman that I was arguing with at one point that felt like her teacher was omniscient and I said, Oh really? You think her te- your teacher knows what we're emailing about right now? Said, oh yeah, she's totally tuned in. And you know, then the woman ended up getting breast cancer and she got very disillusioned because she felt like her teacher should have known it and should have said something and so on. And, and I, said, oh. I, you know, I, I hated to say I told you so, but there was that sort of feeling, you
1: know, if you have a minute, sure. I, can I t- this is an old happening which happened in Tiruvannamalai at the Ramana Ashram, no, Ramana Maharshi Ramana, there was a young man who came to the ashram and uh, spent three days without food. And he was he was also in Maun, like Maharshi, he didn't speak. And then after three days, he sends a note to the Maharshi, he is also in Maun, like the Maharshi hardly spoke. Ramana Maharshi sends him a note saying, look I have been here for three days, nobody asked me are you hungry, nobody gave me food, and you, I have seen you every day, you didn't ask me either, and you are feeding monkeys, but what about me? And there is a beautiful answer given by Maharshi, He, he broke his silence to speak to this man. He said. If you didn't ask, how would I know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's
1: great. And there are people who think that Rahona Maharshi was omniscient. Yeah. I think he didn't think so himself.
0: And yet, you on see? the other hand, there were some instances where he knew something that would. it obviously took some deep ability to know. For instance, there was this man who was a painter and he was. Painting uh, the cave that up up above, and Vil, Vilpakshu Cave or whatever it was called, and Ramana was down in his ashram, and um, he was standing in the back of the hall during some ceremony that was uh, being held to commemorate some renovation that had taken place in the ashram, and he was feeling so bad that. Ramana couldn't appreciate the work he had done in this other place. And so there was this whole story where Ramana wasn't supposed to go any place because his health was bad and, and some attendants found him basically crawling up the mountain on his hands and knees getting all cut and so on to get up to that cave to, to, to see this guy's work and appreciate it. He had just picked up on his thought and felt compelled to go and, and give him that um, blessing.
1: There are two points in this. One is the compassion of this person. <laughs> so important yeah. the second is that doesn't mean always one knows
0: right right it's one, right may,
1: specific. one may not yeah one may or one may not it's natural it's yeah. not as if it's built the other is somewhere along the line I think that peop, babaji used to say this to me people have misunderstood the Vedantic dictum which says that which when once known nothing more remains to be known what it means is not that you are omniscient. Of course you may be better than somebody else, of course, because a yogi has certain faculties, but it means that you have got complete satisfaction, you have no more desires to be fulfilled, therefore you don't need to know anything. It means you don't need to know anything, not that you know everything.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, the way uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to put it, he said, um, you gain the benefit that would be had were you to know everything. But you don't know everything. Yes. You, you, you gain this, yes. what he used to call the home of all knowledge.
1: Absolutely. That, I think that, that's a nice description.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh. There's another point that's related to what we've been talking about with gurus and all, and, and that is that um, you know some people feel like they should hang in there with a particular guru through thick and thin no matter what happens. Even if the guru seems to be going off the track, they just hang in there because he he must be perfect, he must be wiser than me he must know what he's doing, it seems crazy but I'll hang in there and other people sort of cut and run or or maybe they move from one teacher to another throughout their life and so gurus for them are somewhat transitionary figures in your case you had one primary guru but you also took instruction and guidance and so on from a variety of other teachers so what would you say about that point?
1: I think that should be left to the aspirant. Different people are made differently. I stuck with one teacher but this teacher himself instructed me to go and see other people. So there are such teachers. Now in Sufis for instance, among the Sufis, uh, there is no compulsion to stick to one teacher. In fact, after a while the Sufi teacher tells his disciple, now this is all that I can give you, go to this other guy. You see, so there is no such thing, but there are some people who like to stick on and hang on and if they are not disillusioned, probably they are doing the right thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. What you have to watch is do they get disillusioned at the end? <laughs> and even, there is another good thing here, even if the Guru turns out to be a fake, all the faith that you have put in him and the practice you have done sincerely may help you even if it doesn't help him.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. Who was it, Dhruva that kind of became a, a master archer just worshipping a statue? And Absolutely. Yeah, and, and then so, his teacher came along and told him to cut off his thumb eventually. but uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: And we have in Kerala, we have a beautiful story about, you know, the Nambudri Brahmins of Kerala, mm-hmm. who are supposed to be experts in uh, mantras and snake charming and, you know, snake poison and so on. So the story is uh, a man who belonged to a very low social scale came to him and wanted to learn how to revive uh, a person who was bitten by a snake. Mm-hmm. So, this guy was uh, very upset with him, and you know, he was standing outside and he said, Matha Kushmanda in Malayalam, which means, oh, rotten pumpkin, he doesn't know what he's asking for, you know, that kind uh-huh. of thing. This guy, in his innocence, thought that it was a mantra. Uh-huh. So, he went away into the forest and sat somewhere and near the river and chanted it for a number of years. And one day, a man was bitten by a snake. And he was brought to the this big nabudri Brahmin uh, man, and he looked at him and said, "No chance now. Take him away to the crematorium." So they were taking him to the crematorium. They had to pass through the side of the river, and this guy was sitting there and chanting, "Rotten pumpkin, rotten pumpkin." <laughs> you know, he got up and said, "What's wrong?" They said, "There's a man who's we're taking him to the crematorium." He said, How can we bring him here? And he said brought and pumpkin and the guy got it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. So
1: <laughs> you see faith.
0: Yeah, just faith. Uh-huh. Complete Devotion, dedication. So let's get back to your story. We'll pick it up in your autobiography. So you were the yogi in the Himalayas, you you were Babaji said you made a big mistake rejecting this guy. You should you, you need to sort of you do the yogic kriya to leave your body now, and you'll be reborn. And you were reborn as a, you know, in Kerala in a Muslim family. And at the age of twelve or something, you saw this impressive man standing under a tree in the backyard. Nine years. Nine years. So there was this man who turned out later to be Maheshwar Babaji. Not Guru Sri Guru Babaji, but no, no, y- no. your teacher, Sri yeah. Guru Babaji's student. Yes. And he spoke to you briefly and what happened at that conversation?
1: You mean when he met me at the age of nine? Yes. Yes. Now, it was in the backyard of our house mm-hmm. under a big jackfruit tree and uh, the first thing he asked me, you know, I was very frightened in a way. There was a stranger, a very tall big man standing with matted hair, I have never seen anything like that. <laughs> so I was very nervous. So the first thing he asked me was, do you remember anything? In Hindi, he said, ya? well, we all speak Urdu at home even though I was born and brought up in Kerala because of the background. Right. So I said, I, I don't remember a thing, I don't remember anything. I was wondering what, remember what? So, he touched my head with his hand and said, over time you will get to know. Mm-hmm. So this was the only experience I had at that point and then he told me to go back home and I was walking across and when I tried to turn I could not bring myself to turn. There was something which was stopping me from looking back.
0: To see if he was there. Yeah.
1: yeah. and then I reached the kitchen and then turned around and he was gone. Mm-hmm. So. I still think he went out, there was a small gate near the compound wall mm. so probably he did. But the thing was from that day in the night, middle of the night especially, I used to be kind of woken up from sleep as if, it's not as if there was a presence, but something woke me up and I would then lie down and keep looking at my neighbor uh, in the Nabi area and there would be some kind of a light coming there and it would spread over my body. And it was very blissful. So I had many such experiences every night. That I think that was my spiritual preparation. And that was this spontaneous meditation because I had not studied anything about meditation till that age. So this went on till I reached my finished my college, school, college. I had several experiences. Meanwhile, if you read the autobiography I met many holy people around, saints and yogis, and then I got this compulsion to get out. I felt like a bird in a cage, you know, kind of caged in, I wanted to just break and fly. And there was this Himalayas beckoning me, of course. I didn't even know I was going to meet uh, Maheshwaranath Babaji, I only knew that something was on and something was there. Uh, and I had to go, I had to get out of the situation.
0: And you had the sense that maybe you weren't looking for someone specific to meet but you had the sense that there must be these great beings in the Himalayas, yeah. you would heard the stories mm. and you just had to go and find out. Right, Yeah. that's
1: right, I had heard, I would read, by the time I had also read your autobiography for yogi sure. and I thought there must be some yogis up there in the Himalayas. I didn't expect to meet Babaji, Ji, but somebody must be there. And so I went. I went to many ashrams. You know the story. I met many people, but I was not fully satisfied. I kept going. In fact, Swami Chidananda was the head of the Divine Life Society at that point in Rishikesh, and he told me one day, "I don't think you stay here. I don't think this is enough. You're looking for somebody high up there, upper reaches." And he warned me, "But be careful. There are lots of fakes around." So.
0: <laughs> yeah. I remember even one very respected person said, oh, don't believe all those stories, you know, there is just a bunch of hashish-smoking you know, yes, sadhus, yes. you are not going to find anybody remarkable Absolutely. up here and, and you were getting pretty discouraged. In fact, you were just about, I think you said in your book, you were about to throw yourself in a river yes. uh, and just you know, give up the ghost and then at that final moment, that evening, you met Babaji. You, you met Babaji.
1: Yeah. Uh, I was contemplating suicide. Because right. I thought, you know, you have burnt your boats, or bridges, or whatever the expression is, and then you come here and you find there is nothing here. I mean, what will you do? I thought maybe this body is not suitable this Mm -hmm. time. And especially the person who discouraged me was a high up priest in the Badrinath temple, and so I thought he must be knowing, Mm -hmm. he must be speaking the truth. So, that's when I met uh, Babaji again.
0: Can you recount yeah. that experience of when you first met Babaji again? And you keep in mind, people listening, that we are not referring to Sri Guru mm. Babaji, who Yogananda talked about in his book, we are talking about his student, but we are we, going to keep using the name Babaji because that's how you refer to him.
1: Maheshwanath Babaji, yes, but right. when I say Babaji, I mean him generally. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it so happened, it was evening time and I had passed the Vyasa Gufa and gone up. So I was coming back. I was looking down at the Alaknanda, the river in there is called Alaknanda, it was beating down on the rocks, and I said to myself, half a second, half a minute is enough to take your life here, <laughs> if you just jump in. So then it occurred to me, let me go back to the Vyas Gufa, which is a little further down.
0: That's the cave?
1: Yeah, right. And now it's become terrible. The other day somebody went and said, there are hundreds of people there, and there's a priest who has set himself up. There's no way you can sit here. In those days, there was nothing; it was just a small cave. Mm. So I went back and said, "Let me meditate for a while before I decide. Something may happen. Who knows?" So I went back, and before I reached there, as as soon as I reached there, I saw a fire on the in the mouth of the cave. Now, you know. Generally, sadhus, especially those with the Nath Sampardaya, they have fires always. They're called dhunis, dhunas. So I thought there must be somebody inside. There's a fire here because when I went this way, there was nothing. So I slowly edged myself into the cave and Babaji stood up. Hmm. The moment he stood up, that image flashed in my mind when I was nine years old. The same Tall person with just a small cloth, matted hair, and that big Rudraksh which was on his neck. You know, it was the same. And then he stood up, and his first words that he said was, Oh, so you have gone around window shopping and come back. To me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he didn't use these words, right. but he said, right. So I said to him, Babaji. I don't think I'm going to leave you forever. Believe mm. me. Mm. And he laughed and he said, We'll think about it. In <laughs> Hindi, <laughs> he said, We'll uh, see. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, one thing that amazed me about your book, did you keep a diary while you were no, going through all these no. adventures?
1: I have not kept a single diary about anything in my life. Did- and. Uh, Yeah, I know.
0: Yeah, it's like this is 40 years ago, you're traveling all around (laughs) and you're actually able to remember what you ate for lunch at a particular place and I I couldn't possibly do that.
1: (laughs) No, I I couldn't do it myself. The thing is, when I wrote this book, every time I sat down and wrote a chapter, all the memories would come back to me. Hmm. The moment I finished, there will be nothing left. Now, if you suddenly ask me about something in the book, I might have forgotten now. Yeah. So I might probably refer back and then tell you, ah yeah, I did say that. Because it used to come in a flow and when it was over, I had to put my pen down and shut it up for the day. Ah. And sometimes for several days I couldn't write. But when it came I had to stay up the whole night because it was like a possession, kind of. Please don't mistake me. I was not No, I understand.
0: Yeah. You were just the creative surge yeah, that you had to. Yeah.
1: And then all details, which shocked me myself. I was shocked that I could remember because I'm very bad. My memory is terrible even today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel like you were being guided by Babaji or by, you know, the, how the, the idea of a muse that is, that is speaking through you or something?
1: No, it was not as if it was speaking through me, but somewhere somebody was kind of switching on something and the whole thing came out, it was like that. Nice. Uh,
0: One thing is that um, in your book you went around, you saw many teachers and you were often being initiated into this kriya or that thing and a lot of different instructions and initiations. And I can't imagine that you would actually be able to practice all these things on a regular basis because there were so many of them. So were you just sort of getting a little taste of this and a taste of that Mm -hmm. and then you had your main practice that you stuck to?
1: Yeah, but whenever I took, like Sri Vidya was given to me by somebody Mm -hmm. on instructions from Babaji. Mm -hmm. So during that period when I was supposed to practice it, I did it fully.
2: I
0: see.
1: I didn't do anything else. I was only doing that. Of course I had a little bit of my kriya yoga for 10-15 minutes and then I did this. So Babaji's instruction was when you get something, practice it fully with complete attention Then don't worry about your mind. And then when you have touched something and you know, probably this is where one one understands what's happened, mm-hmm. and then you stop and shift. So when I did one thing I was only doing that. I was not. You know, drifting around.
0: Yeah. I want to get into some stories of things you encountered in the Himalayas. Some of them are, are pretty amazing. And might, Unbelievable? Yeah, might be, some people might be incredulous, and, and we're going to get into a few of those. But I uh, just want to, before we get into that, I just want to bring up a general question for you. I don't know how tuned in you are to contemporary spiritual. Teachers and the whole, the whole scene. But there are, you know, there are a lot of people coming on who claim to have had an awakening. Personally, I think probably there are many degrees of awakening and, and sometimes these proclamations seem kind of ultimate, like, I am awakened, and I always feel like there's going to be more. Um, there are even people, there's a whole kind of category of people who, who say, you're already enlightened, everybody's already enlightened, all you have to do is accept that and you're done. Um, And whereas I have a much more progressive, incremental understanding of things, that there's a vast range of potential Mm -hmm. spiritual development, and virtually nobody's done because there's always something more. Um, So I'm kind of interested in the idea of a roadmap of higher consciousness and and sort of what the range of possibilities Mm -hmm. is. And I think it would be valuable for people to understand that in general. Firstly, because it's inspiring if you realize what's possible. It's like, whoa, you know, that that could be my experience in life. And secondly, because it perhaps might safeguard the path and prevent people from getting sidetracked in things which really don't have that much relevance to higher states of consciousness but which seem interesting or flashy and so on. And also Mm -hmm. because, just a final point, just because it would safeguard people from feeling like they're done when, relatively speaking, in terms of what's possible, they might just be getting started. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What do you have to say about all that?
1: (laughs) I think so, myself in some ways. The great thing about the spiritual field is that it's actually unending. It's, It's not as if you do and say, oh, this is over it's never over it's it's vast it's like the milky way so when somebody says i'm done with and it's over i feel a little not so happy with that situation yeah. i think yeah maybe he's done with something yeah okay there's <laughs> something more you understand the important point about not being sidetracked You may have some visions, you may have some colors, you may hear some sounds, and then if you think you have done everything possible, you're not. I mean, this is just. I always tell people do you have as many visions as somebody who has had LSD?
0: No. (laughs) And even if you do, so what?
1: So what? They also have it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is apart from the fact that when talking about Samadhi, and different ways of getting into samadhi. Patanjali in his Yoga Sutras says that chemical uh, process is also possible.
0: He does. Mm-hmm. He says what? Drugs, mm-hmm. gems, mantras, uh, or herbs, mantras, gems, and something else, I forget.
1: Well, it's very interesting because in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, in the samadhi part, how to attain samadhi, mm-hmm. there are different ways described. And one of the things said is Isura Pranidhanena. That means also by surrendering to. Ishwara, God. Mm-hmm. And the next sentence is Aushadhanani. It's also possible through chemicals, mm-hmm. medicines. Right. So God and chemicals have been put just one foot below each other.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact you had an experience with the soma plant, and we're going to talk about that in a little while. That'll be that'll be interesting. Here's a question that came in from Vijay Mukherjee in Dallas. You'll probably be meeting him when you go to Dallas. But he's um, this is related to what we've been saying here and I have a feeling of how you're gonna answer this, but he says Is your present state on a par with, say, Sri Guru Babaji? What, if not? What makes one being so evolved and another less evolved?
1: Hmm. Well, Sri Guru Babaji is in a category which normal human beings who are born and brought up, born in an womb, cannot compare with. They're there for a special purpose. Such beings. Mm -hmm. So I can definitely not compare with that. Yeah, I have had some spiritual experience. And I believe that everyone has the potential to touch that. Uh, it requires a great deal of hard work, there are no shortcuts possible in this matter. Uh, so this is my answer to the question.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you feel that if, um, if spiritual evolution is never ending, as you just said, um, that eventually somehow all souls will end up being exalted souls like Sri Guru Babaji, um, eventually, big mm-hmm. capital E?
1: Oh, certainly. I think, but it may take ages before we touch that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it may take ages, but ultimately the evolution is towards perfection, uh-huh. and before perfection it has to go through a grind,
0: Yeah.
1: so we are going through the grind, when we come out and then gradually go higher and higher, every soul's destiny ultimately I think would be to reach the higher stage, but mm-hmm. it will take ages, Right. it will take time. And therefore, every human being has a potential. I uh, recently, when I was on this walk, this uh, long walk, marathon walk, I got uh, 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 the bishop, uh, Catholic bishop from Kerala, called me and said, Is it possible for you to meet the Pope? I said, Listen, I'm on a walk. If you think I can break it for a few days and go, because after all, so he said, Okay. So I went to uh, and met the Pope. Went to Rome. Uh, yeah, I went to Rome, mm-hmm. and I, I had uh, ten minutes—little more than ten minutes—of personal audience with the Pope. Mm. And it was interesting. Uh, I went because he's the head of a vast, big church, and uh, which uh, is hopefully uh, keeping Jesus Christ's teachings intact. Hopefully, so I. And <laughs> anyway, a person who so many people worship and regard as very high, so I thought it's a good thing and it's a new, I thought the new Pope is also a new person, uh, so I went to see him and I, with great respect and I did Namaskar as we do to all holy men and he also did and we had a chat and one thing struck me, his words, was he said, look, every um, saint has a past, and every sinner therefore as a future, yeah. you know, this is uh, one of the things he said which really affected me. So I am saying this, any great saint, even if it is Sri Guru Babaji, at one time must have come from where the ordinary human being is, mm-hmm. and therefore the ordinary being has all potential to go there at some point, he point. may not be today or tomorrow, but you see. Yeah.
0: There's that mm-hmm. verse in the Gita even if you're the greatest of all sinners you should cross over mm-hmm. all
1: different by birds. the raft
0: of knowledge pra, alone
1: praramthas, yeah before you reach there huh. and in fact Krishna also says to Arjuna in the Gita it's very interesting he says you know Arjuna you and I have all been born millions of times both differences that I know and you don't that's all yeah
0: I have a question about that, actually, that, since you mentioned that. There's that verse which is, uh, "...never was a time when I was not, nor you, nor these rulers of men, nor will there ever be a time when all of us shall cease to be." Yes. And that can be read two ways. It can be read in terms of, you know, we are Brahman, we are we are the Self, and there is never, you know, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. Or it can be read as individual souls who Have always been and will never cease to be with some flavor of individuality. Which way do you read it, or both?
1: You know, it's even a whole tradition in India, in this country, I'm not here, but in India has been this, it's kind of a controversy really. Because if you go the Vedantic way, there's only the Brahman and everything is just temporary coming Uh and going. Now, there are other streams of philosophy which are as ancient or even more ancient than that, like the Sankhya philosophy of Kapila, Mm -hmm. and the Jains. Jains is a very old system. Rishabha Deva's image was found in Mohanjadaro, Mm -hmm. who is the first uh, Tirthankara of the Jains. So, the Jains are atheists. they don't believe in God and a creator God, Mm -hmm. but they believe that each soul is immortal. Mm -hmm. And to discover that is the aim of life. When you are free of all distractions and everything then the pure soul shines. Now the only controversy is when that pure soul shine, uh, shines in itself is it the whole brahman or is it an individual thing? This is something which uh, we have to experience. For my understanding it takes a long long time to discover probably that there is only one and that these things don't exist. For a long, in your spiritual evolution for quite a length of time you still retain a little bit of identity. In fact if somebody asked me to become the Brahman I would maybe refuse because like Guru Nanak said, I I, I like to be the ant that tastes the sugar then become the sugar because if I become the sugar I don't taste anything. So it's a great thing to in fact even retain a little bit of individuality while accepting the fact that perhaps there is something where there is nothing at all no individuality
0: and i don't know if one has a choice anyway right i mean one
1: doesn't have a choice
0: it just happens when it happens <laughs> yes, yeah I, I interviewed a vaishnava a krishna bhakta a couple of weeks ago and they have this whole controversy between themselves and the Mayavadi's, as they call Absolutely. them. Absolutely, I tried to draw him into that conversation, but we didn't really get into it. That oh much. yes!
1: In fact, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the founder of this whole system, which has become Gaudiya Math, is Khan and so on. Right. He said that if you listen to a, the lecture of a Mayavadi once you will probably go to hell a hundred times, so,
2: yeah, it's a so extreme, is it, is
1: yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. so I think this one shouldn't go to that kind of an extreme, you know. Yeah. Uh, Adi Shankaracharya preached uh, the Advaita philosophy of Vedanta, but there are many kinds of Vedantas, there is Vishta Advaita, there is a Dvaita, all that is Vedanta. Yeah. But I personally would think like Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa said, you start with duality. Then you go to the merger state, and then probably at the last, you you don't exist. Only the Brahman exists.
0: Yeah, so, quoting quoting Maharishi Mahesh Yogi again, he made a good point on this point. He, he said this whole issue of whether you merge with God or you stay separate from God in order to worship God. He said it's not your problem. It's something that you can. It's something you'll consider when you actually get to the point where you yeah. have <laughs> where you could exactly. do that. In the meanwhile, don't exactly. worry about it.
1: <laughs> in fact, there's another point which Babaji Maheshwar Babaji said to a man who was a complete Vaishnavite. Mm-hmm. So you know this, we Vaishnavites right. draw this point. Right? Yeah. <laughs> So and the Shaivites do this with mm-hmm. ash. So he was talking to him. He said, "Look, at the moment, you can only see the feet of the Lord. <laughs> Stay with this. When you reach the head, then you decide whether you draw this way or this way." <laughs>
0: yeah. There's some good questions coming in from people, mostly from India or Indians in the U.S. But um, I want to uh, get back to your personal story here for a bit, and we'll we'll get to these questions. So, there are a number of stories that happened in your book which I don't mean to make people skeptical of your whole story, but for those who could suspend their disbelief for a moment and just listen to some of these things, I think you'll find them kind of fascinating. And I've just picked a few that jumped out at me and, um, for instance, now there was one where you had a fever and you were lying in a cave or something and some might attribute this to, you know, delirium from the fever. But um, you actually had the experience of apparently a yeti coming in, uh, you know, a so-called abominable snowman coming into the cave and offering you some kind of cure for the fever. <laughs> Touch on that one.
1: Yeah. Now the thing is, I didn't say or think that it was a yeti <laughs> till the last when Babaji suggested uh-huh. that it was so. I didn't. I didn't have any such idea. My, I was sick, and I had high fever. And I actually saw, this is not a delirium because uh, the Nepalese uh, guide who was with me also saw it, it's not only that I saw it, he he just screamed and ran out of the tent. So there was this thing which is huge and which was whitish and hairish, this much I can remember, and it, it did look like, uh, like an orangutan or something like that, and it came close and It made a peculiar nasal whining kind of noise. I thought it was trying to say something. I was scared but I was not scared enough to run and anyway I was very sick to get up. And it put something very, very extremely sweet into my mouth, it pushed it in. And then it just, this Nepalese guy started screaming and he just went away. But the thing is, the point is that the thing which was in my mouth was there for quite some time. It was not an illusion, that thing which was in my mouth and uh, my fever came down from the next day onwards.
2: Mm.
1: This is this is a fact, these things are facts. And then I had no idea what this was and who this was. So later on when we were going back, I told Babaji, Babaji, you know, he said, look, don't discuss it with people because nobody will believe this, <laughs> just leave it alone. So I said, what do you think it could be? He said, "There is there are being still a species which is neither human nor ape, the forgotten species, rarely in some areas they still do exist and people call them eti and various things, you know, abominable, snowman, mm-hmm. the, the names are not important, he said, there is a species that still exists. It's almost gone, but there are few, and they're wise. They're intelligent. It's not that they're not intelligent. Mm. And this guy was trying to help you.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, but they must be very intelligent if they knew if they knew that you were sick in the tent yeah. and they had some kind of medicine, medicine that they could actually give you. It must be a very evolved species. Yeah.
1: So I don't know. When people ask me, "Oh, did you see anything?" I said, "I don't know. This is my experience." Yeah. So you call it Eti, you call it what you want and from babaji's description i believe that there must be some species which has you know the the uh, darwin has gone a lot of things about evolution but the missing link has still not been properly solved it was possible
0: yeah okay now here's another interesting chapter in your book there was a chapter called Kedanath opening the channels mm-hmm. and uh Perhaps you could discuss a little bit of what happened in that chapter.
1: You know, Babaji wanted me to speed up a little bit of my cleaning up of the inner channels and he said that the work that you have to do, I think we can't wait for another two lives to get it clear, so there are other ways of doing it, well it has its plus and minus but I am taking the risk, are you ready for it? I said, Ji, I have completely surrendered myself to your hands, whatever you say, I am ready to do. So he sent me into that little cave. You know that cave which I am talking about still exists in Kedarnath, there is a little kutir like thing I'm built over it. When you are walking down and crossing the bridge to go to the Kedar shrine, if you look up on the left, you will see a little kutir up there on the mountain, nobody stays there now recently I sent some people to go and look what is happening there. <laughs> so they came back and said there is still a little garden like, looks like somebody is coming and going but anyway. So I went there and Babaji uh, left me in the cave and he went away. I was alone to fend for myself. And three people came. I don't know whether there were people or what, again this was not a hallucination, (laughs) they had those cloths tied like the jain sadhus or what they use in an operation theatre, you know, Mm -hmm. like...
0: Like a face mask.
1: Surgeons, yeah, and uh, they were wearing some kind of a white dress and they were tall, I couldn't see anything except this because it was also hooded Mm -hmm. and they came and asked me to close my eyes. and. Then all I know was that I was moving, but I don't know where I was moving. And they brought me down. It was as if you're going down a tunnel through the stones, and then I came into a small room. When they removed the,
0: uh, the blindfold, uh,
1: blindfold which they had tied, and I saw that there was nothing in the room. It was an oval room, and first they gave me a a liquid to drink, they made me lie down on a slab and then sit up and have something to drink, it was a very bitter kind of uh, liquid, uh, it it was very greenish and probably herbal so I drank it and then they made me lie down, when I drank it my whole body started kind of...
0: Convulsing?
1: Yeah, kind of convulsing and a little painful. Uh, They made me lie down, and there was a round kind of a thing like a, I don't know how to describe it, it was like a helmet, like a big helmet with a round bottom to it. And there was some uh, electric, uh, not some cable like thing coming out of it. So they fitted it some bit here and here, here and here. And then they didn't make there was no injury, it was fitted on the top and then I lay down and then I had some experiences which for the first time I was experiencing that I was outside my body and looking down at myself and then from there I was taken somewhere and uh, given some instructions and then I was brought back and then I can't give you the time because it seemed the time had kind of in a different dimension time kind of I came back it was like a jet lag i'm back and then they took this out and then they again blindfolded me and got me out of there so i went in front of the kutir where babaji lived and i bowed down to babaji and said it's done so he called me and checked me here or there okay go and do your kriya in the evening he said we'll see so After that time, for a long time, whenever I did Kriya, at the end of it I felt like lying down in Shavasana and I would slowly get out of the body and look down. It went on for some time and then it slowly subsided.
0: I think you said that after that procedure that there was kind of a deep, clear unity to your experience too, everything was unified.
1: Yeah, that's true, there were certain facts and certain experiences which I couldn't bring together in one piece and after this it was as if they were all put together like yeah. the jigsaw puzzle.
2: Huh.
1: Uh, I saw everything clearly kind of and I thought that it might have probably taken me many lives to get there if they hadn't done some kind of a procedure.
0: Mm. Do you have any idea who these beings were and where they are from or anything like that?
1: Babaji never said anything about this except to say that they were not from the earth. Hmm.
0: Meaning they might be from some place physically distant or from a more subtle realm, could celestial they, realm or something?
1: I have never followed this up but from my experiences later on in life mm-hmm. and having understood various things I think they could have been from... Uh, Another realm. <laughs>
0: ah, okay. I hope you don't mind my asking questions about these particular stories. I don't want people to brush you off as a, as a kook, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. I think those who are open to the possibility that there's more to life than meets the eye yeah. uh, might find these things interesting. I certainly did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. I agree because you know it's so so funny to think. That you are the only living being on this earth, I mean on this uh, universe. It's so ridiculous. If you come to think of it, we are smaller than the smallest speck of sand when you compare with the whole Milky Way. Oh, yeah. And yet, we think that anything that has to be there should be here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Actually, I heard that recently that there are more stars in the known universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches in, in the world, just, you know, trillions of stars. These days, the you know, with, um, I forget the name of the telescope, um, but they're… Well, there's Hubble, and there's another one that starts with a K, Mm -hmm. and that's specifically designed for trying to Kepler, Mm -hmm. maybe. That's trying to trying to find whether there's planets around other stars, and they're beginning to find that planets seem to be the norm. Yeah, it's like most stars have planets.
1: Absolutely. So, what's the condition that there's no life up there? And maybe some of the uh, they are more superior to us. In ancient times, they always talked about the devas coming and going and so on. Maybe at some period it has been cut off, now it's Mm. very rare.
0: Well, that leads us right into the next story. You have a chapter called Fireball from the Sky. Yes. Can we talk about that one?
2: (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Why not?
1: I have nothing to hide, (laughs) (laughs) the The only thing is people might think I'm not okay here.
0: They might, but so what? (laughs)
1: this thing about the fireball, it is also something which I was—I saw when I was neither sleeping nor dreaming nor in any kind of, anyway, I never hardly ever took any right. narcotics or right, anything, right. You know, except when I went to the Naga sadhus for a short period and stayed with them it Babaji said, find out, go. Yeah. So I was perfectly okay, I had had a meal and I was sleeping when this happened. It was like. If you go to Arundhati cave, if you have been to Rishikesh, you know there is the Vashishta cave. Mm, on uh, It is about 22 kilometers from Rishikesh towards Badrinath. So if you go down from Vashishta cave then you come to the Ganga, the river, then you walk along and then up there is the little cave which more, not more than two, three people can stay there. It is called the Arundhati cave. Now I was sleeping in the last part of it inside and Baba was Babaji never slept. I've never seen him sleep. The maximum, uh, the only thing I've seen him in, sometimes he would lean and sit. That's all. And he always had a dhuni, fire. So, I kind of.
0: And he, like, I just should add, and he never wore anything more than a,
2: a small cloth around his waist, cloth. even
0: when yeah. you were hiking up to 18,000 no. feet in the snow. And, and barefoot. And, and, barefoot, and
1: barefoot, yeah. barefoot. Even in Gobuk, the Gangutri Glacier. Right. Anyway, so you know I heard a th- kind of a thunder, like a distant thunder, so I woke up and I didn't get up, I was watching. From the cave you can s- first comes the river and the cave is up here and the other side you have a horizon with a lot of trees, mm-hmm. so from there I saw something coming, it looked to me like a moon, like a moon which has become slightly large. <laughs> like that and it came and there was this light kind of thunder kind of sound coming and it came straight down and sat near the fire which Babaji had and when it sat there was a thunder clap very loud and it when it came near I found out that it was around this big, almost big enough for me to sit for instance. Right,
0: it, a, big, a big sphere. Mm-hmm
1: it was a big sphere yes right and then it opened so by the time i was really very very scared <laughs> so then it opened and that made me even more scared because inside i saw some kind of a bluish colored a serpent like a snake it's as if you uh, the snake was made of blue glass deep blue glass and but it was a live thing, it was not a and there was something going on between that and Babaji, uh, because it seemed to be some sort of a conversation. I couldn't grasp anything.
0: They were hissing.
1: They were kind of hissing and making noises and I was so scared for some time I thought maybe I have finally become deranged, <laughs> but I thought it can't be, I can see it. So Babaji said, come here. So I went near him and held on to him because I didn't know what was happening. Then he said bend down and bow down. So I bowed down and I think the snake put its head on my head for some time. And then I got up and it got in and it vanished. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of it? I mean, I couldn't make anything out of it at that point. Later on I asked Babaji and he gave me a fairly long description about the Naga Loka and how there are many worlds and this is the snake world and the one who came was Nagaraj who is the prince of the Naga world. So I said, but why did he come here to you? He said that there was some problem in the Naga Loka, something was going on. and. He came to ask my advice on how to sort it. So I said, Babaji, you are an earth person, you live on this earth, and somebody comes from Nagaloga to solve the problem, to ask your advice. Is this possible? He said, You know, there are in this world people with human bodies who are more evolved than all the Nagas in the Nagaloga. Beyond that,
0: I don't know a thing. <laughs> I once heard a story that I didn't know what to make of it. I I thought it might be somebody's somebody made up a story or not, but it was a story about when um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi first opened, I used to be a student of his, which I keep Mm -hmm. mentioning, where he first opened his ashram in Rishikesh, and um, someone came into the room and saw him and Tatwala Baba, whom you know, talking to a large snake, and apparently the discussion was about making some agreement whereby the cobras and snakes in the air would never bite any of the ashramites mm-hmm. and, and apparently that never happened, nobody ever got bitten by a snake. Mm-hmm. I, it was one of those far out stories that I thought, well, mm-hmm. who knows, I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, I would say it's, it's possible, Yeah, <laughs> it's uh. possible because I also know that there are lots of cobras in Rishikesh. Mm-hmm apart from the serious scorpions, there are also lots of cobras, and there are black cobras, there used to be, I don't know how much now, Mm. and uh, to live in that place where Mahesh Yogi built his caves would have been difficult if there not some kind of an agreement between this, (laughs) because that place was very well known for these. It's actually the way to Nilkant. from behind you go right up and you can reach Nilkant.
0: What's Nilkant?
1: Nilkant is a Shiva temple on top of the hill Ah. in Nilkant and it is right behind that. You Mm. go where the caves used to be, cut across and then you keep climbing and you come to Nilkant after an hour or an hour and a half. And it is famous because Nilkant again is Shiva Mm. and the snakes and the cobras. So that area is a cobra invested area and halfway to Nilkant there is a cave called Mauni Baba's cave which has three underground caves. If you don't know, they won't show you, but once you go in there, then there is one down, then there is one down, there three. Mm. And that place also used to be swarming with cobras, mm. the hooded serpents. So I tend to believe rather than disbelieve the story <laughs> about yeah. this.
0: A, there's about four questions that have come in. That I want to ask you. I'm going to start asking you pretty soon from people who are watching live. But I, I thought it might be nice for you to tell us the story of when you finally did meet Sri Guru Babaji. Twice. Twice. One
1: was again the same place which we were discussing just now, mm-hmm. the road behind the caves uh, which goes to Nilkant. So this was a. It happened like. Babaji and I, mahishwanath Babaji, were having a discussion on teaching of Kriya Yoga. So Babaji gave me a lot of uh, conditions for teaching Kriya. Looking at the conditions, I said, Babaji, I don't think we can ever teach Kriya to anybody with these conditions. It's not possible. He said, one has to be a celebrator. There are many householders, people who are, un, who are married, they would like to have kriya. You can't say kriya can be I said, what about Lahiri Mahasaya, I said, that's a different story. So, okay. Anyway, we were having various discussions on this. And then we were walking along the Ganga and came to that quiet spot where it turns into. And then I saw somebody coming, um, difficult to describe. I have never seen anybody like that, maybe in my past, but not in this life, a very beautiful looking person with long hair and again bare bodied just like Babaji, with only a white cloth and barefoot. As soon as he appeared, Babaji prostrated before him. Now I have never seen Babaji prostrate before anybody, never. Uh, I have seen people touching his feet, I have never (laughs) seen him do it. So I said, This must be his guru, and then it struck me if if his guru is Babaji. So I also prostrated myself. So he lifted me up. I can never forget the touch. Uh, it was completely out of his world. And uh, he put his hand on my shoulders and he told Babaji, Maybe you should listen to the young man, cut down these requirements. <laughs> <laughs> and then Then uh, he just abruptly took his hands off and walked away and I wanted to run behind and follow him, you know, and Babaji held me by my hand and said, you can't find him, it's it's over, finished, leave it. So I saw him turning the corner and I couldn't see what happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. That was one instance when I saw him for the first time in this life. Mm -hmm and the second was when Maheshwanath Babaji attained Samadhi, Mahasamadhi, when he was passing away. Again, something like what I saw in the Arundhati cave came. This time it was larger and from inside...
0: In other words, a golden, uh, a glowing sphere.
1: And from inside Babaji stepped out and along with him a young man stepped out who looked very handsome. Babaji said that this is... Uh, Nagaraj said but i saw him in the cave it was like a snake he said this is his form this way and that way both ways so he came because he wanted me to take over some of the aspects of maheshunnath babaji into myself for the work so he put his my hand onto maheshunnath babaji's hand and he put his hand on top of that and held it for a while and then I actually felt something coming up. Uh, and then he released it, and he said to Babaji, "Yeah, now you can go."
0: So, in other words, there was like a download or a transmission from him there to you. There was something
1: happening. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> was a download, and I, I became uh, completely mad. I mean, I don't know how to put this. I,
0: <laughs> mad with uh-huh. bliss or mad with
1: everything changed. I felt completely different.
0: It was as if
1: somebody, some part of Babaji has also got into me. Mm. I won't say possessed, no, it's not like that. So then Babaji, uh, then they went off and Babaji uh, attained Samadhi. The very moving thing was that he did nothing but just turned around all four directions, sat down. And breathed hard. Has gone. So I had to fill it up. I wanted at least a stone to be put there. I asked him beforehand, at least to identify the place. He said no. So I know the place even now, but um, you can't locate where it exactly. It's near Mauni Baba's cave. When uh, I go to the Himalayas and take people with me. We usually sit around the place, but exact location
0: yeah. nobody knows. Do you have any idea physically how, many, how old your Guru was? I mean, I know he was very old and didn't look it. He looked like he was yeah. about 30, but did you ever get a, a, an idea? Yes,
1: uh, this much is clear that he said he was a young man when he met uh, Sri Sh- Guru Babaji. And that uh, he was there when Shyamachar and Lehri went to meet Sri Guru Ji in the cave. So that is a 100 years. And now another uh, uh, 35 years, so 40 years. So I think easily he could have been, from my understanding, about 150 years or so old. But he looked like uh, 30, 35. It's quite young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he hardly ate anything. He would drink water also, very less. And uh, I somehow felt that he didn't need food, but he just ate sometimes when people offered him. sounds mm-hmm. like that.
0: Nice. I find all this very inspiring and interesting. I, I mean, some people might accuse me or us or anybody who finds this interesting of just being sort of fascinated with flashy stuff, which doesn't have concrete relevance to one's personal awakening. But I I think, in my opinion, it does, because I think that, as we've said earlier, the range of possibilities and the extent of potential that dwells within us is really vast. And if we dumb it down to to say, well, it's just this, or it's just that, or you know, you're already enlightened or whatever, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. Which is not to say, as you said earlier, that people Mm -hmm. should get all caught up in all kinds of fanciful, Mm -hmm. imaginary Mm -hmm. things, that's not going to help them. But there should be a respect for the possibility that there is a a vast range of potential unfoldment and that there have been great Mm -hmm. beings, and are great beings now, who are living that way.
1: If that much is understood, then I think we have gone a long way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I always tell people, you don't have to believe the stories. okay, fine. But there are many other chapters which don't have the story, so don't neglect them, go through them. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is, as long as you understand that there are things which are beyond one's understanding as of now, then my job is done. I mean, yeah. At least if the mind is open to say there are other possibilities. it's yeah. good enough.
0: In Zen they have a thing called beginner's mind and I, I think one way of interpreting that is that, you know, one should have, uh, the, and Amma always says this too, that one should always have the attitude of a beginner, which is not to say that you haven't made progress, yeah. but that if one just sort of keeps an, a humility and an open mind. Who, who was it? You were telling a story about a, a Confucius or somebody who was pouring tea for someone and he just kept pouring and pouring and it kept spilling (laughs) Mm -hmm. over. Go ahead and finish finish the story, yeah. Yeah, the Zen
1: master. It's about a very learned professor who was so full of, who gave lectures on maybe even Zen, who went to a Zen master and wanted to learn Zen and experience Satori. So he made tea for him and started pouring the tea and the cup was overflowing. Then the professor said, sir, the cup is overflowing. And the Zen master said, so how can I give you Zen, your cup is overflowing. (laughs) So so sometimes by our attitude we shut the door to understanding, Mm -hmm. our attitudes, you know. So all I am saying is suspend your judgment. Yeah. It doesn't matter, don't accept it, don't reject it. You suspend your judgment and say there may be other things which we don't know, or there may be other things which can be known through modes which we do not follow. There may be other modes of finding them out. So this much if it's there I think my purpose is served. In fact, people should do serious research on these matters even the scientists should start looking at it especially the neurologists and the psych they should start looking at these i'm sure they are kind of started this on that brings me to my i'm trying to i'm writing another book now which i this is not the exact title but the subject matter is the neurological basis of mystical experience or spiritual experience Great. What What is the connection between the brain and these experiences? I am working, I have done about three chapters, I I have them with me but I don't think I I put it away somewhere. Oh, that's okay. So, um, so, I am working on that, so we have come to the third cha- fourth chapter, I have just been working on it today, it is interesting, it is called the Avadutas. You know you must have heard about Avadutas. Sure. Those crazy people.
0: The who, naked sadhus. Yeah. A, yeah.
1: And, and completely crazy people who one would think are gone off the rocker. I think in this country they would be inside the asylum. And they're extraordinary people. Something has happened to their brain, but you can't say that it is negative.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about this. This interests me. And this whole idea of neurophysiology of enlightenment really interested me. In fact, I can introduce you, if you like, to a researcher who's been studying it for mm-hmm. decades, very sophisticated EEG research and all. I can put you in touch with him. He, he might like to study you. I
1: would be happy if you can do that because I will do that. I, I need to. I'm working on this book and I'm trying to get as many neurologists interested in it. They yeah. want...
0: This guy, I'll definitely put you in touch. He would. His name is Dr. Fred Travis, and he lives here in mm-hmm. my town. He's been doing this EEG research where, for decades. Where is this? Where Iowa, is this? Fairfield, Iowa. Iowa. Yeah. Okay. The thing about the Albert is, do you think, in your opinion, are they in a very high state of consciousness, and yet some of the circuitry has been fried, and so they they behave so strangely? Or do you think that th- that their behavior and their, the way they are is com- is a completely legitimate expression for them of higher consciousness, and it's just part of the the variety of life that there should be these sorts of strange expressions?
1: Ah, uh, I think these people have broken into the this suddenly, you know not step by step. Without
0: like, the proper integration. He, he,
1: they have just broken into it
0: yeah. and they
1: have come across something so extraordinary that the ordinary brain is not able to come to terms with it completely. Uh-huh. However, since they have touched that energy, it's possible that they might be able to bring it about in other people, not deliberately, but for the fact that they are a dynamo, so you touch a wire and <laughs> right. get something out of it. but. None of these people we know of who did any teaching in this kind of step by step way and instructed people or had disciples, no. But people who have been following other disciplines, when they go and sit with them, they do get something out of them. Yeah. And (laughs) uh, yeah. So I feel that they burst upon the truth so suddenly, I don't know for what reason, but that it kind of shocks some parts of their system and they're not integrated to,
0: yeah. with it, you know? So theoretically, if um, there, there could be people who appeared very normal and could be running a business or raising a family or something who could actually be in as high, if not higher a state Absolutely. than some of these abahuts, but they had, it was integrated, it's balanced. Yes, yeah.
1: integrated. Uh, you, I would almost agree with what you said that somewhere there is some circuit has been, <laughs> because these energies are tremendous. Even I feel sometimes that little bit somewhere my circuit might have got.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, on this note, I've been uh, several people contact me from time to time, and lately I've been corresponding with a young woman in Spain who may be listening to this interview who is going through extreme Kundalini uh, emergency, or so she interprets it, um, and it sounds like that's what it is, um, to the point where she's paralyzed for many hours a day, going through all kinds of contortions. She says she feels this. Volcanic energy, you know, trying to rise up in her system, and and just it's it's stuck. It's not it's not moving. She, her life is just a total mess. It's um, kind of like maybe I, I never read Gopi Krishna's book, but I understand he went through a lot of similar stuff. So I mean, do you ever are you ever in contact with such people? Do you have ways of helping people who are going through what we might call a spiritual emergency like that?
1: I can say that only case by case, I can't make a general statement on mm-hmm. this, but I have met people uh, sometimes who are, because when I go to Brighton Bush, we have workshops in Brighton Bush. Where is that? In England? Oregon. 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 Oregon mm-hmm. uh, between Portland, after it's near the Cascades, there is a place, a retreat center called the Brighton Bush Hot Springs,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Ramdas used to go there before, you mm-hmm. know Ramdas. Sure. Hawaii, yeah. Named
0: name Karoli Babas. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. So, I go there for the last 11 years, every year I have been doing a retreat there. Uh I I just came back from there, Mm -hmm. here. So I haven't met uh, too many, but a couple of people who have had this problem. Really bad? Uh, Some, one was quite bad and uh, I think she has now got adjusted to normal. So I don't have a technique to do that, Yeah. but it's a person to person thing. So maybe if you meet this person, it's possible that something could be worked yeah. out. I don't know for sure, but it depends on the individual.
0: My sense is that it would be good if somehow um, some kind of clinic or some kind of... Uh, there are some people who specialize yeah. in Kundalini care. There is a lady named... Mm-hmm. Um, Joan Shiva Pita Harrigan, who has a Kundalini Care Clinic mm-hmm. in Tennessee, whom I've interviewed, and but apparently she doesn't take ca- p- cases where people are in a spiritual emergency. She just takes cases where people are doing okay and they want to just redirect and mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But there are these cases, and doctors don't know how to deal with it. And, they don't know because yeah. it's
1: something to do with their uh, the centers of the brain which have not been explored.
0: Yeah, and all they're going to, doctors are just going to give them drugs, and that's not going to help it. So, that hopefully, right. as, as we grow as a, as a culture, as a society, we'll, we'll understand this better and give relief to such people.
1: I think we need centers yeah, where yeah. people like this can come. Okay. And, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. People have been sending in nice questions, and I don't want to ignore them. And so, we'll jump around a little bit because diff- <laughs> the questions are on different topics. But um, here's one from Srinivasan in Chennai. He asks, Arjuna continues to fight a war despite self-realization because his svadharma is to be a warrior. This is a nuance often missed in the spiritual world which advances the narrow idea of an enlightened individual only existing as a social worker or compassionate guru. Could you elaborate on the concept of svadharma and the means to discover our personal svadharma as well as that of others?
1: Svadharma is a very uh, loaded word. I am talking to Mr. Srinivasan. Mm -hmm. You know, swadharma, people interpret it as doing one's duties and so on. I think there is only one swadharma, swadharma is dharma for oneself, one's own dharma. One important swadharma is to truly find yourself first, who you are, where you are, what you are, what is your essential being to figure that out would be your swadharma, because unless you figure out who you are or where you stand, what can you do to somebody else? You might be thinking you are helping somebody but you actually might be taking him to destruction. Mm. So, when I say swadharma, while it is a good idea to work on, uh, to help others and to be compassionate and so on, swadharma actually is to find out who you really are. What's your source? And then, having done that, to act from that plane. Yeah. From that point.
0: Which is just what Krishna said in the Gita. He said, established in yoga, perform action.
1: Yeah. Now, that action would be action without leaving any blot on yourself. Where the action would be purely from a completely altruistic point of view. Mm-hmm. nothing to do for yourself but for that i think one has to first discover one's own dharma and to understand one's own dharma one has to understand oneself first yeah. so i think that is the first step to do
0: and you might actually be a warrior it might it might not be might not be a social worker it might you, you might have a a role to play that doesn't look very ahimsa you know but is actually
1: ahimsa your is role. more to do with your mind state than with anything else, uh-huh. yeah. uh, you can be a completely non-violent guy outwardly and be so violent inside,
0: or vice versa, maybe.
1: <laughs> vice versa, also.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm. You could look like quite an, a passive and a peace-loving guy, but you might be filled with a lot of violence. Mm. This is also possible. It could be the other way too. So I'm saying, first find out about Swa. Swa means self. Yeah. And then from that start working out.
0: Yeah. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added. Then to um, here's a question from Paul in Asheville, North Carolina. Sri says, it requires a great deal of hard work. In practical terms, what does work, what work does Sri M recommend on a daily basis for those seeking self-realization?
1: Mm-hmm. One is to set apart a certain period of your day for your spiritual practice. Now this should be inviolable and it is hard work to do that, Mm -hmm. even to think that way. So when you say this particular time in the day I am going to do my spiritual practices, stick to that. That is the first thing I would ask people to do. Because it is very easy to get this illusion, all I know so I can throughout the day, be there and and there at the same time and so on, but it is very fuzzy, you know, it is not clear cut, so it is good to have a period set up when you say, this time I will only do my spiritual practice. Now that practice may be different for different people. I sure. So, I think that is the first step and that is not easy, that is hard work. When I say hard work, that is one of the things I mean that when everybody is going on one direction, somebody turns around and is swimming against the stream, it is hard work. You may not be appreciated, people may criticize you, if not openly at least they say, what is wrong with this guy? So, if you can put up against uh, with all that and still continue with your spiritual practice, that is what I mean by daily hard work.
0: Yeah.
1: And it has to be, there are no shortcuts.
0: When I first learned to meditate when I was a teenager, basically I had to drop all my friends because my friends were just you He's know, take, taking drugs and all and, and I just didn't want to hang around with them anymore and um, eventually I got new friends. There's an old Bengali saying which is that if, if no one comes on your call then go ahead alone.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You can't. In this field, in this field, you cannot depend upon public opinion, one. Second, that's why I say it's hard work. And the other is that, it's as you said, it's so relevant that people drop off. Mm -hmm. People who think in a different, in one way, would definitely drop off because you're thinking in a different way. And sometimes you lose what you might have thought were your great friends and old friends. It's a new item. You have a new set of friends.
0: (laughs) You know, but when you use the phrase hard work, I'll bet you that you're well, you've done a lot of arduous things, but I bet you most of the time when you have sat to meditate, it's been blissful. It's not like it's not like you think to yourself, Oh, I've gotta go meditate, it's such <laughs> hard work. It's more like, Oh boy, you know, I am looking forward to this because it's so enjoyable.
1: In the beginning no. In the uh-huh. beginning it's difficult. Okay. In the beginning when you start off, you have to break your mind which is normally distracted in so that is difficult. But yeah. once you start and once you kind of brought your mind back you are no more a complete extrovert, but you can introvert yourself. And then in, as you become more perfect, you can introvert yourself at the press of a button, kind of. Right. As a, then it's not so difficult.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> Here's a question from Sagar in Toronto, Canada, which relates to what you were just saying. He says, I keep moving between two states, one where I am not, he- not there, just presence but then the mind comes up with a stream of thought and there is a sense of identification with it. Would you please address this type of experience? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, this happens to many people who meditate. There are times when you are just aware and not involved and there are times when your mind gets involved. So in the yogic philosophy itself, the mind, the chitta, as it is called, is full of thoughts and distractions. So it is in the in the nature of the chitta to be full of thoughts and distractions. Now the witness which is aware of it is not the chitta but the purusha, the Self. So somewhere along the line you should sit continuously with the awareness that what is aware of the distractions is not the chitta but the purusha, so much so that after a while you are no longer associated with the distraction. Distraction is there. It is the nature of the mind. But you are not associated with it in any way when you realize that you are the witness to it and not the one that is involved in it. It has to come by and by.
0: It gets more it's stabilized over time, right?
1: Stabilized and deeper. Right, right. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So it comes through constantly trying to. First of all, it's not as if. You are trying to make the chitta totally silent. It's like you are understanding that the chitta, by its very nature, has vrittis,
2: mm-hmm. fluctuations, mm-hmm.
1: Fluctuation. Right. And but you are not that. You're, you are aware of it, but you are not that. Mm-hmm. It's like now you can have a lot of fluctuations of electricity, sound, weather, everything. But I am not part of it. I am watching it. So when this is stabilized, then. the wonderful thing is when this is stabilised the chitta also becomes silent. Mm.
0: Now there's a subtle point here which is that um, it's a description-prescription kind of issue where people describe the state of being a witness and and just sort of watching the activities of the mind and that could be a description of the way one naturally functions at a certain state Uh, but it could also be either offered as or mistaken to be a prescription where you're telling people watch your watch your mind try to be the witness you know try to mm-hmm. while you're doing other things try to maintain mm-hmm. a, a presence are you advocating that or would you consider would that that would divide the mind
1: I think that would divide the mind
0: right yeah
1: it's not a prescription i mean it's i'm not saying there's a method
2: yeah
1: i'm only saying that while this is happening try and disassociate yourself from it i mean just be silent
0: Well, the reason I am a little bit cautious is that people have gotten themselves into disassociative states, you know, they have gotten disintegrated and and people lose jobs, lose relationships, they become Mm -hmm. kind of impractical in the world when they approach this in what I would consider to be a mistaken way, not quite what the original teachings uh, were intending.
1: Yeah, you are right. While we certainly require uh, periods of isolation in this practice. Isolation is not a prescription for your life. It is not for your life. You you do require periods of isolation, but when you come out of the isolation, you are not cut off from the world, you are integrated with it. Yeah. You don't come out with the feeling that this is different and I am different. No, 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 no. That, this is not what I am talking about, yeah. please. In fact, once you are stabilized in your inner self It becomes much more easier to function in this world.
0: Yeah, naturally.
1: Because the mind is calm, it Mm -hmm. doesn't get agitated. It does what it has to do quietly. Mm -hmm. And there is no distraction, and therefore, when you want to do something, you know how to put your complete attention on it.
0: Yes. And that's an important phrase complete attention. If you're flying in an airplane, you wouldn't want your pilot to be sort of putting half his attention Ah. on on flying the airplane and the other (laughs) half on, you know. Oh, I am only the witness. You know.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. In fact, I keep telling people the description of uh, yoga, the eight limb yoga. One of the limbs, pratyahara, so it is like yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara. Mm -hmm. So pratyahara. Some people say it is withdrawal of the senses. I said, look the But Pratyahara, this is a wrong translation of Pratyahara. Pratyahara is that, as you said, when the pilot is sitting in the cockpit and he's flying, he's only flying. He's not thinking of meditation. That, that he can do it one pointedly without distraction, by itself is meditation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ho- hopefully he's not thinking about what he had for dinner last night Absolutely. what he's going to go where he's going to go on vacation he's focused on flying
1: so that is meditation yeah. it's not as if you should sit there and meditate on the buddha <laughs> <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> but when you're sitting down and look meditating on your buddha buddha when i mean buddha i'm talking about bodha right. inner uh, consciousness we're doing that, then you're not flying an aeroplane, you're not thinking of tomorrow which is my flight. This is what I mean.
0: Good. Um, here's a question from Elizabeth in Colorado, she asks, is the final enlightenment or awakening something that happens within time or does it transcend time? I think I'll just add to her question, some people say, if you think that enlightenment is something that's going to happen to you sometime in the future, then you'll always be chasing it like a donkey chasing a dangling carrot, and then in fact the only time enlightenment ever happens is now. So what would you say to that?
1: She also asked about time span, you know, whether it's in time Yeah, is it time
0: or does it transcend time?
1: Transcend time. <laughs> Yeah, when the experience actually happens it transcends time, but it is not as if it is there and you are going towards it. The Upanishads have a beautiful description of the truth, it, uh, it says tad dure tad which means it is near, it is far and yet so near. If you look at it in an ordinary time pattern it is far. But if you look at it from the inner point of view, it's right here. So it's not as if it's a linear, it's a linear progress from here to there. Uh, it's a here is a situation where it is everywhere and here, and then where are you traveling? I mean, where do you go? You sit. So it's more to do with not grasping, mm. trying to grasp and. When all grasping ceases, perhaps it's right here. So you can't say it's going to come, when you say it's going to come, you're actually putting it away.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of a conundrum in a way, because I mean if we say, okay, it's right here now, then by that token everybody in the world is enlightened, and in some respect perhaps they are, but it's, it's not a, a living reality for them, and it will become a living reality for them as far as I can see, sometime in the future, and yet yeah. and yet, it's right here, and yet yeah. they don't see it. Perhaps that's so the best that's way of putting it. That's why
1: it's, it's a conundrum. That's why they say it's there and it's far and yet so near, because there's no other way that our so-called uh, limited brain can grasp this concept. There's yeah. nothing.
0: Isn't there some saying in the Bible or someplace, maybe it's in the Vedic literature, the truth is spread all around but men do not see it, some such phrase, you know that? Have you heard
1: that one from the Bible? I haven't I uh, seen this. I have only seen uh, there is a verse in the Quran which says whether whither though ever you turn your face there I am mm. <laughs> there is a like that yeah. which would be completely contradictory because then you, you have to pray turning your face towards the Mecca, so, <laughs> uh, anyway so. The question, the answer to the question which this lady asked just now, is that while from our ordinary point of view we are still here and not get got enlightened,
2: right.
1: therefore it is far mm-hmm. in time. However, when we understand that enlightenment is not a thing to be pursued into the future, but it is understood now, then it is it touches the timeless factor. Mm. And if it has happened, it is certainly timeless.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. This next question from Mark Peters in Santa Clara, California, I think might possibly relate to the walk that you took from southern mm-hmm. to northern India. If not, we can you can answer the question anyway, but do you feel that spiritual awakening has a practical value for world problems? For instance, if enough people were to become spiritually awakened, could it help um, to you know, solve the problem of global warming and, and so on? Um, or do you feel that the fate of the planet and human life upon it is ultimately uncorrelated with the deepening of consciousness?
1: No, I completely understand that if we are spiritually awakened, whatever that means, if we are, then in our actions it certainly reflects and our actions will certainly be to integrate rather than to disintegrate. So bringing peace and not war to be environmentally conscious and see that all living beings are as important as we are including the plants which are living beings. Mm -hmm. I think these are all expressions of one's spiritual understanding. So I personally believe that if more people become spiritual, in the real sense of the term, then it becomes a solution to the world's problems. Please let me clarify, I am not saying that if we all sit together and meditate on peace we are going to get peace, no, I mean that is a good thing to do, it it can change minds, but uh, a, a person with a spiritual understanding and realization, his actions would always reflect integrity and integration rather than disintegration.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I say disintegration in a bad sense of the term. Yeah. yeah, So therefore this, my walk was, I didn't have an agenda except that I want people to come meet and talk to me and see how I think about this whole situation of life. And so we went from village to village to city to city, we met all kinds of people. And I'm convinced that we have planted this, at least the seeds of harmony in some way. It takes time to grow. You plant a seed, it tomorrow it doesn't become a big tree. It takes time, it needs to be nurtured. Various factors involved. So I think that if more and more people are spiritually inclined, in the real sense of the term, not to consider spiritual as being some kind of a runaway from society or you know, to hide from society or an excuse for laziness or things like that, not that. Then the mind becomes good and kind and better and it reflects on everybody else.
0: I hope you wore shoes on this walk and you didn't go barefoot.
1: I and
0: and shoes, I Good. Hopefully good shoes, not just little rubber flip-flops, but... Uh, I did
1: try the rubber flip-flops in the beginning, <laughs> but it gave me a lot of trouble, so I wore proper walking shoes. Good. You have to be practical in these matters. Yeah. These Arabs have a saying, you know, you trust in God, but tie your camels. So. Yeah.
0: I would love to have been on that walk with you. It must have been a wonderful adventure. Uh, I'll go on the next one. The Uh, My wife wants to know if they allow dogs on the walk. No No dogs are allowed. (laughs) No, no, apparently not.
2: Oh,
0: Oh, you said yes or no on the dogs? Yes. Oh, yes, dogs are allowed. Okay, so next time we're coming and bringing our dogs. (laughs) Um, Just a note on what we were just discussing. I would say, and would you agree, that everything we see on a global scale, world problems, health problems, economic problems, environmental problems, so on and so forth, are kind of just a, a, a manifestation on the most surface level of the conglomeration of human consciousness. Seven billion people, each of them having a certain makeup, a certain state of mind, a certain state of consciousness, and taken collectively, they well, in their own individual lives they produce an influence, and you can see that in their family, for instance, but then uh, in the community, in the nation, in the world, uh, all the, the quality of life that we see... Uh, on the surface is just a reflection of the quality of all the consciousness of all the individuals making up the society, and the, just to, just as a tree, as a forest, which is all gray and brown, might be, you know, it's gray and brown because each individual tree is gray and brown. And if you want the forest to be green, you have to water each individual tree. So, con- you know, conversely, if you want the whole society to really be free of all these huge problems, something needs to be done to elevate the consciousness of each individual that makes up society. That's rather long, long-winded statement. But do you see it that way?
1: I, I believe so. You see. When you say society, there's no society without us. Right, we're it. Society is human beings, (laughs) right? So, unless we, and also a little bit I differ on this colors, they need not be all green. eh?
0: Well, that's just a a metaphor.
1: The whole of nature lives in its uh, different uh, multiplicity. Mm -hmm. Even though there is an essential unity, outward it is all multiple In fact, Prakriti, which is the word used in Sankhya philosophy for the, for the earth, for the universe, Prakriti, the very definition of Prakriti is Prakriti, Prakriti is that which differentiates. So differences are bound to be there. There is an essential unity somewhere behind. Mm-hmm. So I personally believe if human beings, we who form society can change then these things can change. Uh, Reformation from outside is not going to do much, it is necessary of course sometimes, but you can't hope to get the change that we seek by just social reformation, it has to come from inside.
0: Yeah, and along the lines of what you are just saying, if we were to eventually have a a quote unquote enlightened society, um, we probably wouldn't... Everybody wouldn't be the same. Everybody, there's. In fact, there'd even be greater variety. I mean, if if you water the, Salute. if you water a forest, then the, look at the Amazon rainforest. How the the variety and diversity mm-hmm. there, where, where you have a really sort of thriving ecosystem.
1: So right. So our attempt should not be to grow only lotuses or grow only, <laughs> uh, you know, roses. Yeah. We should have a garden where everything is. Yeah. And everything grows equally well. I mean, this is the thing, you, you cannot turn roses into lotuses and lotuses into roses. They have their own nature. But to have a good lotus and a good rose, this is the thing.
0: Yeah. I guess you could say if the, if the innermost self or spirit is the ultimate nourishment that, that drives our. it's the fuel that, that animates our, our life, then, um, you know, just if that fuel starts to be more abundant each life yeah. is going to flourish in its Absolutely. diversity as well as be more harmonious with all the others. With yeah, without clashing. Yes. Right. Here's a question from someone you probably know, um, it's Priyam in Mandanapali. Mandanapali, your town in India. She asks... Oh, she's a dentist. Uh, oh, she's a dentist? <laughs> Okay, well this question has nothing to do with dentistry. She says, um, for someone who needs to start reading Upanishads, which would you recommend they start with and which English translation by which author would you recommend? And of course you have a book uh, commenting on several of the Upanishads. I was reading it last night.
1: Uh, I think one of the best Upanishads to start with is the Katha Upanishad. The mm-hmm. Katho Upanishad uh, is a very beautiful Upanishad. It's a dialogue between the Lord of Death, the King of Death, Yama, Yama. and this young boy, Nachiketas, Love who goes sir. there to his court. It's beautiful. Yeah. He's asking him to tell him the meaning of death and what is life and so on. Mm. So, and a very good translation. You know, there are many translations nowadays of the Upanishads, but my recommendation would be to go back to the rather impartial, simple translation of. Uh, Dr. Radhakrishnan. Mm-hmm. Dr. Radhakrishnan was one of the presidents of India at one time, but he was a great scholar, and uh, although it tends a little towards more towards Advaita Vedanta mm-hmm. of Shankara, because he was more of a Shankarite, it doesn't matter, but it is, because he didn't belong to a certain cult or anything, it is absolutely non-denomination,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it is clear. So I think, and it is very simply written.
0: And how do you spell that uh, Katho Upanishad?
1: Upanishad? Katho uh-huh. Kato Upanishad, K A T H O, Katho Upanishad. Right. Kato. I think okay. that's a very good start. And the next would be the Isha Vashya Upanishad, because it is the smallest of the Upanishads.
0: Isha. Isha and you do Upanishad. a commentary on that one, don't you?
1: I have. I, have. Yeah. I love it. It's a beautiful
0: <laughs> And is, is that the one that Purnamada Purnamidam is in?
1: Purnamada Purnamidam is the beginning of the the sloka before you start the Upanishad.
0: Right. Oh, all of them, or just that particular one. In
1: different different Upanishads have mm-hmm. different. Uh, they're called the Shanti parts, the first beginning. Mm-hmm. And because Purnamada talks about everything being complete, mm-hmm. and Ishavasya Upanishad talks about the all-pervading reality, so it it links it together.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, let me see here. Uh, there's a few more questions. There's a good one from Oh Srinivasan again. He's prolific in uh, <laughs> in Chennai. He says the concept of kaivalya. Um, how does it compare with Buddhist enlightenment ideals such as arhatship and buddhahood?
1: It's a technical question, but uh, let me put it this way. Um, there are different schools of thought who, that describe enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Kaivalya is a word which is picked up from the Yoga Sutras, it is from uh, Sankhya and Yoga Darshanas. Kaivalya. Kaivalya simply means complete, uh, pure awareness without anything else, Kaivalya. Uh, it means alone. Does not mean alone? Alone. Right. It means when you realize that you're alone, there's nothing mm-hmm. else but you, not in the sense of Srinivas or M, but you in your true essence yes. of the term. That will be dangerous to think that only yeah. M exists. Sort of one without a
0: second, kind of <laughs> yeah.
1: a yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when uh, this happens, this is called Kaivalya. Mm-hmm. Now the Vedantic term used is moksha. Moksha also means the same but it adds the other dimension, one more dimension which is freedom. I personally think Kaivalya is not different from freedom. Mm-hmm. Kaivalya also means to be free when you there is nothing but that, there is nothing to be entangled or conditioned by. And moksha means freedom from rebirth, freedom from conditioning and being free forever. I mean this is moksha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now when the Buddhist says Nirvana, <coughs> not only the Buddhists, even the Jains call it nirvana, the ultimate state. You know there is somewhere along the line a misunderstanding that that nirvana actually means that everything is gone, like the blowing out of the candle. I have had several discussions with Buddhist monks, unknown, known, including His Holiness Dalai Lama and what has emerged from my understanding. That nirvana means basically a snuffing out of all the agitating, distracting and negative impulses from the mind, not total annihilation, there is a wrong idea, which is why people say is this the same as that, it is not annihilation, it is annihilation of all that draws, holds you down, all that is heavy and dark and negative, Uh, all that like your Greed and your lust, when that is cleaned, when that is cleaned, and the mind attains to a state which is called nirvana.
0: Did the Dalai Lama if, agree with that when you offered yes. that?
1: Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I didn't offer it.
0: Well, you we see, would, you you see it started.
1: Yeah. It started like this. We were having a. In fact, I thought he must be busy because so many people were waiting for me. Said, Please see, "Don't worry." Okay. So, um, the thing was about the Upanishad. Uh, the Kenopanishad, which comes from the Sama Veda says, yan manasana manyute yena that means that which even the mind cannot reach, uh, but because of which the mind has its capacity to think, that alone is the truth, nothing that you worship here. This is the So Keno Upanishad. So the Dalai His Holiness stopped me, he said, just a minute, if the mind also cannot reach it, then what have we to do with it? (laughs) We have nothing to do with it, if even the mind cannot reach it, so what do we do? Nothing. So I said, what it means is the ordinary mind cannot reach it, he said, yeah, that's right, ordinary mind, so what kind of mind can reach it? A mind that is clear of its temptations, its lust, its anger, its greed, such a mind can understand it, right? Yes, he said that is Nirvana. This is how this conversation came.
0: I would also say perhaps that, um, you know, there is that chit, Yogas Chitta Vritti Naroda that mm-hmm. the, when the mind reaches that,
1: it is like,
0: it's like getting out of a boat, you know, you have reached the shore so the boat has served its purpose, the, you, the mind is transcended at least momentarily or, or that is beyond the beyond the active mind it's more fundamental right. than the active mind
1: right. so therefore when people ask this question like mr srinivas uh, somewhere along the line this the idea is well buddhism does not believe in a, a creator god in ishvara so can it be the same the nirvana as for instance moksha but i would say that in all these there is no mention of creator god at all including sankhya hmm. Yoga believes, of course, the theory of yoga, but the state of kaivalya, moksha and nirvana, by definition, in essence, are the
0: same. It seems to me that all these different religions and schools of thought and so on, including the systems of Indian philosophy, it's not like they are competing or combating one another, they, it's more like they just have different angles on the truth and yeah. different specialties. I mean, one of them, the specialty is to focus on this and, right. and not the other things, because those things are taken care of. And there may seem to be contradictions between them, but um, in, a lar- in a larger picture, they're all just pieces of a larger puzzle, like the blind man feeling the elephant, you know?
1: Yeah, <laughs> and that story of the elephant actually comes from ancient Jain sources. Mm. Which was elaborated upon and made a favorite story by Jalaluddin Rumi in his Masnavi. So it comes from Jain sources. So the source is not important. Right. The thing is more important. Now they, you know, the the Jains have something which is so interesting. It's called yeah. Anekavada. Anekantavada. That means something could be what I think. It could also be what somebody else is thinks. That's
0: good. Attitude. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Anekant, anekantavada It is called, which means, oh well, it may be this, it may be that, and the elephant story comes from that tradition, Right. because and ultimately the whole, nobody knows.
0: And both are right, you know, even but though they are right. experiencing something completely different and they could argue with each other, then you are wrong and you are wrong and no, you are actually both right, it is just part of the larger picture.
1: <laughs> it is like Vedantavat, they call it anekantavada, that means, well, that may be what you think. Okay, you're right, but maybe somebody else, that may be right too.
0: <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, um, do you? You're traveling around. Right? P- people will be watching this for years. So, right. But right now, you're in the United States and you're in the West Coast, and you'll be going to Dallas pretty soon, and then Long Island. Um, and you have a website, satsang-foundation.org, is it, or .com? Yes, yes. .org. Dot .org. Dot .org, mm-hmm. uh, which I'll be linking to from mm-hmm. uh, BatGap. And um, people can check out your schedule and your various activities there and everything. Um, is there something set up whereby somebody who's interested, wherever they live, can learn something to s- practice as a spiritual practice? For instance... Someone asked uh, another Srinivasan from a different place in India, must be a common name, Gurgaon, India, asks, uh, can you, you know, Kriya Yoga, are you teaching what, you know, Yogananda taught? You've used the word Kriya. Do you have a practice that you advocate or that people can learn in order to get into the routine of a daily pa- practice? I, d-
1: I do, but it can't be done remotely. Yeah. Right people come yeah. and meet me and then they sit down and discuss. The Kriya which I teach this comes from the same tradition as Yogananda Paramahamsa. Mm-hmm. There is no doubt about that, because Yogananda Paramahamsa was taught by Yukteswar Maharaj, who was Lahiri Mahasaya's disciple, who was Babaji's disciple, one of the prominent disciples in this time. Mm-hmm. So it is the same tradition, therefore the Kriya Yoga practice. The basic Kriya Yoga practice is the same, it can't be different. I have met people, I have talked to the SRF and the YSS people and it's the same, however there are certain practices which are not commonly taught to everybody, it depends on the teacher and the student. So when you are in touch with the student, you might feel that this can be added or that can be subtracted. Mm-hmm. Now there are such such elements which may be a little different, but the basic theory of uh, the Kriya Yoga, which means that the energies in your body have to be concentrated and made to your awareness has to travel from your Shushumna Nadi, which is in the center, from the Muladhara to the Sahasrara along with the prana. Now this is common to both the Yogananda's teachings and our teachings. The technique to do that may differ here and there a little bit depending on you know.
0: Does it involve um, pranayama?
1: It is. It's it is a very, very closely linked to pranayama.
0: And some mantra meditation or it
1: has some bijaksharas to be chanted along with the centers, the chakras. Okay. But there are many disciplines of similar kind.
0: And so, Uh, let's say somebody is watching this and they are in Australia and you are not going to go to Australia and they can't travel, what would you recommend for them?
1: I would say that they should start with the preliminary practice which can be given to all. And how do they they get that? It doesn't cause any harm because you are not dealing with anything directly with energies. So a simple method which we call... Which in some traditions also they don't teach unless you are initiated, but I think we have evolved and it's time to come out, you know, and not keep things in the dark and hide it somewhere and make it look so mysterious. So, this is Babaji has given me permission to give the first part of which is called we call it the Hamsa technique. The Hamsa technique, the well, the Bengalis say Hamsa, but it is Hamsa, I mean, which is basically to, first to do the Guru Mantra, which is to place your hand in your, nowadays I have been broadcasting the Guru Mantra. In our tradition the Guru Mantra is Sri Guru Babaji is considered to be the Guru, so the Mantra applicable to him, we practice by visualizing a white lotus in the heart center here, Anahat, inside and two little feet on that, not feet, footwear, padukas we call it, footwear on that, and consider them to be Sri Guru Babaji's uh, padukas, and we hold it with our hands and chant Om Hrim Sri Gurubhyo Namah, Om Hrim Sri Gurubhyo Namah, quietly, there is no counting, five minutes, ten minutes, depending upon your time. and we believe that if that is done you have you're kind of establishing a link with Sri Guru Ji. Don't You mistake. do
0: that out loud or mentally? Mentally. Mentally.
1: Uh, yeah. And mm, let me make it clear, which doesn't mean I have to make it very clear that when you start doing it, Babaji is going to come and stand near your bedroom. That's not what <laughs> it means. It means that you know people have various, so the the link is established. And when it is established, we believe that somehow or the other the kriya will come your way. Because it's it comes from that source. Okay. So after doing the Guru Mantra, then we do the Hamsa. Now Hamsa is to sit quietly in any comfortable posture with your head and spine erect, cross legged if possible, and then hands can be held this way or just like this or on the knees, it doesn't matter. And then instead of Controlling your breath, to just watch your breath passively as it goes in and out. And when the breathing goes in, which means when you inhale, in your mind you chant the sound hum, and when you exhale you chant the sound of saw. you can say you Saw. So it's hum, Saw hum, Saw. you are not controlling your breath in any way. You're just watching your breath and when you inhale, you're saying hum to yourself and saw when you exhale out. And remain doing this for a long time, watching your breath. You can hold your breath if you like, but this is not part of the technique. So just do this. Now, when you start doing it, the first thing you would notice is at some point you feel like giving a deep sigh automatically. Spontaneous. When the sigh happens, then you it's a sign that your mind is settling down, and you do nothing. You don't expect anything to happen. You're not going anywhere. You're just saying hum, saw in your mind, watching your breath, just that, with no expectations. But when you do that after doing Om Shri Om Hrim Shri Guru Bhajanamah, which is the Guru Mantra, I have found that it works better. And then, after watching hum saw for a while let go of even that and just sit quietly just be a witness and then bow down before you leave and say thank you and this is a simple thing anybody can do it doesn't matter what denomination you are a buddhist or a christian whether you believe in god with form or without form whether you believe in this saint it doesn't matter anybody can do it
0: and while you are doing this, if you find that you are getting sleepy or your mind is wandering or something, what should you do?
1: Now, if your mind is wandering, the only way is to bring it back to the hum song Gently? Again and again, gently. Gently. And if you are feeling sleepy, the reason is, one, is that the mind is relaxed. And the relaxed mind, if it cannot go into higher states of consciousness, it usually goes mm-hmm. into sleep. Mm-hmm. So you have to get up and wash your face, or do, there is no way out. Sit down and do it again.
0: <laughs> what if you have a backlog of fatigue, and maybe what you really need is a nap? And then after your nap, you'll you'll have a fresher experience. Then
1: you should take a nap, yeah. come back and do it. Yeah, better.
0: Good. Better to do that. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad we, that we were able to take the time to have you give people a little something like that. Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I I, I feel. It's just such a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much, thank uh, you very much. And I'm
1: glad that I'm talking to you because sometimes it's difficult to talk when people don't have the ABC, Mm. (laughs) so it's easier. Yeah,
0: well maybe I'm up to D now, so...
1: (laughs) What I mean is really know D. Yeah, I
0: know, I've been doing... You and I, in fact, you and I almost share a birthday. We were both born born in 1949, I, I in October, you in November. Uh, So we both have birthdays coming up.
1: Thank you very much then. Yeah, thank you. It was very nice meeting you too. Hmm?
0: Let me just make a couple of general concluding remarks before we disconnect. Those of you who have been watching, have been watching part of an ongoing series. Uh, I've been doing these every week for over six years now. And um, if you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. And there, just explore the menus. You can, you know, there's an audio podcast you can sign up for. You can sign up to be notified by email each time a new one is posted, and a variety of other things. Recently, we put up a glossary of Sanskrit terms, and also a glossary of non-dual terms. And over time, we'll keep developing and adding things like that that people might find helpful. So. Thank you for listening or watching and uh, thank you again, Sri M. It's really been a delight. Enjoy your stay in the United States and uh, hope to meet you in person sometime.
1: Sure. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste.